Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. G'day, welcome. This is Better Than Yesterday. It's Wednesday. Thank you so much for being a part of the show today. This is a podcast that's here to make your day today better than yesterday, and it'll do that by opening our ears to ideas that might have otherwise not been there before and make you go, oh, really? And then um, something is a little bit better than the day before because that's what we're here to do. Uh, what's life if without growth? All life is growth. Even the oldest things on earth still grow just a little bit, just a little bit. And if we're not growing, what are we doing? So just trying to get better than yesterday. That's what I've been trying to do for a long time now. And so I started a podcast all about it and um, it's been going all right. I'm Osher Ginsberg. I'm a uh, podcaster. I'm a TV guy. I'm an author. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm uh, what am I? I'm trying to be an, I'm, I'm inhaling the fresh paint on my office walls. Volatile, non-organic compounds, Barry Dubois would say. It smells like black paint in here, which also smells like white paint. It smells like paint. Listen, today we're going to be listening to a fantastic chat with Nikki Hutley. I adore Nikki Hutley. She is just the kind of no bullshit kind of human I think is brilliant. Nikki Hutley is an economist who came on in 2021 to discuss the economic cost of climate inaction. A lot of the conversation around climate action in the last 20 years has been, what it's going to cost us this? Well, guess what it's going to cost if we don't do anything? Nikki is not just anyone. She is a highly experienced economist, incredibly experienced. In 2020, was appointed as a councillor of the Climate Council. Nikki's president of the New South Wales branch of the Economic Society of Australia, and she's also the economic advisor to One Million Women and the Financial Women's Index. When Nikki and I spoke, we were a year into the COVID-19 pandemic. And at the time, it was pretty clear just how much inequality there was in Australia's workforce and therefore the whole economy. And I wanted to know, where did Nikki's awareness of and passion to rid the world of inequality come from? I'm actually not sure. It's a kind of incremental thing. I grew up with a fair amount of privilege. My brother and I were the first to go to, to university, but um, very much encouraged by our parents to do so. 
always expected to have careers. But again, we lived in in a bit of a bubble and I wasn't particularly aware of, of what was going on in, in the wider world, apart from when my mother used to say things like when, you know, we didn't want to eat our Brussels sprouts, think of the starving children in Africa. The classics. We'd say send it to them, um, <laughs> you know, the typical world brat response, but it was meaningless. But so I started my career in foreign affairs and that, of course, really opened up my mind to you know, just the broader world. Um, the first area that I kind of was was engaged with was um, Philippines, Thailand, and Burma, all of which, of course, or Myanmar as it is now, all of which, of course, have incredible underprivileged. Myanmar was at that time, I think it still is. You know, the um, had the lowest level of per capita income in in the world. You know, when you your eyes are opened. And then I was a market economist for a while. And again, you're kind of just so involved in the day-to-day and buy, sell, whatever. And it wasn't until I moved into policy economics, and that was only about 15 years ago, and I slowly started to work on climate change and on social impact issues. And I guess that's where the passion has grown. So there was no single light bulb moment. It's been a, a slow and gradual transition. And I just think, you know, I am incredibly privileged and it's up to people like me to take that privilege and to do, you know, give back where you can. Not everybody's in that position, but where you can, you know, do whatever little bits you can do to to make shift the dial, you you know, it's upon you to do it. There's sometimes our leaders will say, well, you're lucky you don't live in this country. You're lucky that you're allowed to protest. You know, do we really have a scope here in Australia, do you think, of what it is we actually have? No, I don't. Australia, though, has a lot of gaps, and the most obvious one, of course, is between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. And when you look closely at disadvantage and just how we are getting that so wrong in terms of not just providing the right supports, but thinking the way Indigenous people do. And I'm very lucky to have worked when I was at Deloitte with um, some of the Indigenous partners there who really shifted my thinking about what we think of as being, you know, something that you might aspire to is just not necessarily culturally appropriate for other people. And there's this real mindset we have about what makes a good economy and it's, you know, we've got great economic growth and household incomes are rising and you own a house. And we've got this real narrow view and at the, the risk of sort of coming across as a sort of communist, um, I, I you know, I, I believe in economics and I think it does a lot of, you know, markets work their magic, but there are lots of failures as well. And there are lots of different ways. I love um, the kingdom of Bhutan has, you know, gross national happiness. And they don't just look at the economy, they do look at well-being. And of course, you know, New Zealand's moving in that direction. Lots of other countries are. And so to get back to your question, you know, there are lots of us in Australia who live this massively privileged life. And I do have to remind myself and be grateful every, every morning when I can whinge about you know, I, have, I haven't been able to get up to the beach lately because there are so many Australians who are still doing it tough and they tend to be my minority groups. You know, we don't make life easy for everyone and we don't necessarily always spread the love and the wealth around as much as we could do. And I don't like that aspect of our society. There is so much about Australia that is brilliant and wonderful and, you know, we see when we're in a crisis how people do behave caringly. Um, particularly through, you know, bushfires. We're incredibly generous when it comes to charities, you know, through a crisis. But there is so much more that we could be doing through our formal political process, through policy, to address those inequalities, I I believe. There's an argument in some ideologies of government that, you know, if you have a go, you'll get a go. Mm. Is, in your view, just a pure economic 
the numbers, the way, you know, policy levers get pulled and if outcomes meet that. Is that a flawed idea? It's a deeply, deeply flawed idea. And I'll give you a terrific example. So I do a lot of work with not-for-profits and, you know, we were talking with one quite recently and they were saying yeah, they had a guy, he had been homeless, they sort of got him brushed up a bit. He really wanted to get a job, but he didn't have a great level of skills, but he also had, he, he had been an alcoholic, he had a couple of front teeth knocked out. They got him all dusted up together and they got a dentist to fix the front teeth. And the confidence that this man had, he went out, he was able to get a job, low skill to start with, but he got something. He wanted to be there. And there is this idea that people who are on unemployment benefits are somehow just these bludgers who sit there. There are lots of people who don't have the benefit, who, you know, who grew up in households where they, they didn't have the room to study quietly and in peace. They didn't have parents who could buy them the books that they needed or, or the equipment. We know through COVID there are heaps of households where they don't have enough internet you know, bandwidth for everybody to study when they need to. So we need to help these people. But what we also need to understand is that economically, if we do a cost-benefit analysis, investing in these people by providing these supports, we actually generate heaps more benefits. You know, it costs us something, yes, and it's the same with climate, and I will get there. You invest something up front, and yes, that comes often from, it needs to be from taxpayers because there's what we call a market failure. The market doesn't deliver these outcomes but it delivers returns to Australians, to the taxpayers, because down the track, by giving people the right supports, particularly when they're young, we stop them falling into all of these terrible outcomes and all of the costs to society, whether it's, you know, through poor health, through crime, you know, through unemployment and welfare payments, all of those things get avoided if we get in early or at least get in somewhere, but preferably early, and help these people to, to be their best selves. But the idea that, you know, it's pure bloody-mindedness that they're not out there earning a job that can, you know, help them to afford a house in Sydney, it's quite ridiculous. I mean, obviously, you, you do need to put in effort, but it's effort alone sometimes just isn't enough. As I mentioned earlier, Nikki Hutley is a counsellor on the Climate Council here in Australia. She spends much of her time just asking people to prepare for something that is inevitable, yet far away in some ways and right now in others. Yet people are so resistant to believe or uh, too scared to acknowledge the things that she's talking about. And I, I've proposed to Nikki that that must be a challenge. Yeah, well, some of us might argue that it actually now is here. And oh, yeah. it certainly was a lot more difficult 15 years ago when I first started working in this space. And it was really very much this abstract concept. I do think now, you know, we've already seen 1.1 degree of warming. In Australia, it's 1.4. You know, we are seeing right around us the, the rise in extreme events. You just have a look at the last summer, not just in Australia, but in, in Canada, in Europe with wildfires, with flooding, the melting of the, the permafrost in the in the Arctic. You know, and if you look at the head of Munich Grey, which is, you know, one of the biggest reinsurers in the world there, sort of global chief scientist has said, you know, this is climate change in action. That permafrost melting, for example, was 600% less likely to have occurred in the absence of climate change. You know, we are seeing the rate of species extinction accelerate as well as seeing obviously more and more extreme events. So hopefully this is the wake up call, but obviously it was different 10 or 15 years ago that we weren't seeing as much and it was much harder to distinguish. But if you look at 
any amount of statistics, and unfortunately I'm buried in these day by day, you know, you look at the number of extreme losses, um, the US records extreme events over $1 billion. And, you know, we've gone from an average of, of sort of seven a year a couple of decades ago to that's basically doubled um, 21 in the last year. You know, we can see it unravelling before us. And it's a real shame because my colleagues at the Climate Council, long before I joined, a decade ago, were saying the previous decade was the critical decade and we did nothing. We did worse than nothing. We, we let things get a whole lot worse. And now this is the final countdown if we don't act now. But even when you do that, the economics of climate change are such that even with what we're seeing now, the really huge numbers of what how this is going to come down the pipeline don't really come for another 30, 40 years and beyond. So we're talking about future generations. And human beings are such that we value the here and now more than we do something down the track, which is why we pay interest on savings because we're encouraging people to not have that money and spend it now, and we're encouraging them by giving them interest on that money to, to hold off. Now we have to have a really ethical, intergenerational conversation around what do we owe to our kids and to our grandkids. And that's sometimes very hard for people. It's the same reason people still smoke. It's because they can't see the damage they're doing, and they, they have this abstract concept, well, I might get lung cancer in 30 years' time, but I, you know, I'm enjoying myself now. As humans, we're just not very good at that abstract thinking. When you say that, it does kind of, it makes me feel a little less angry. You know, it's just, well, we're doing the best we can with the way that our brains are wired. We are not wired to take action on a threat that is 30 years from now. We're not. We're wired to take action on a threat today or not even this afternoon, like now, you know. So as humans, we, we kind of shitty, we wait for the heart attack before we start to get fit. You know, we don't stop eating the burgers. We keep eating the burgers until the doctor puts a stent in our heart and says, right, no more cheese, mate, off your pop. And in many ways, and I remember hearing it early on, it broke my heart, but then it's kind of like, well, I heard a bloke say the economics will work it out. The economics will work it out. And it's kind of, for me, it breaks my heart a bit that that's how it is. But then I'm also like, well capitalism got us into this, maybe capitalism can get us out. Do you see, what role do you see economics playing in taking action and pulling levers and getting us to a different pathway? Well, unfortunately, economics is full of what we call market failures. So the market, you know, in economics is when you study economics at university, you have this, in a perfect world, all these conditions are met and these outcomes happen and your mathematical models work beautifully. The trouble is we don't live in a perfect world and people don't behave rationally. And there's an idea, and I'm going to get a little bit nerdy for your listeners here and talk about something called externalities. And that's the idea that when we produce something, there are side effects, these externalities, that have consequences for people other than the person that produces the product. And these can be good things and they can be bad things. So if somebody builds a beautiful garden, you know, the people that walk past on the street, they didn't pay for it, but they can walk past and they can look over the fence and go, isn't that beautiful? And they get joy from that. Conversely, when we produce things that create greenhouse gas emissions like carbon, that creates a negative externality. It creates a big cost, but it's not one that is paid for. It's just, it's out there and we know that over time, the reckoning will come, we will pay for it in terms of increased climate risks and climate events, 
but no one's paying for it now and the market has failed. We are going to take a quick break from speaking with Nikki Hutley back in just a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There are so many people like Nikki talking about what the effects of climate change are and will be, and yet so many key players, big business in Australia, the Australian government, that just trying, not making changes quick enough. And I, I asked Nikki what she thinks it would take for the government to start making big changes, big changes in climate action policy. Well, the very first thing they could do is to actually say, we accept the science of climate change. We acknowledge that this is a massive problem and an urgent problem, and we will have a net zero target for all of Australia. And to be honest, 2050, which all of the states and territories have, um, other than the ACT, which is 2045, is not enough. The work that the Climate Council has done is that you know, we've just wasted so much time, we're going to have to really speed up. And this is the international language that we're hearing. So we're hearing lots of countries get more serious about what they'll do by 2030. But we need to have plans. And it's fantastic that state governments are doing a lot. You know, the New South Wales government is really shining a light on this. They're putting transition pathways in because people will lose jobs. We will have industry fade out. But the economic opportunity of new industries to replace those The New Zealand government is working really closely with the cement industry. That's a very energy-intensive industry. They're working closely with them in a partnership to say, let's be world leaders in green cement. In Sweden, they're doing the same with steel, which is now, you know, Volvo's experimenting with it in their new car models. Like, get on the front foot, have a plan. So we need to have an objective. I don't agree that you need to have all the details worked out before you have that objective. Let's just say net zero 2040 or even if they can only cut with 2050. But let's let's say net zero 2040. What are the transition plans that we need for the industries that are going to be affected? Look at the areas, look at the skills, look at the opportunities, put something in place there. Do we need to provide financial support? Do we need to invest in more infrastructure? South Australia, investing in the hydrogen hubs with the private sector, government and private sector working together to produce green hydrogen, so not gas-based, based on renewables, you know, making sure that that happens. Stop subsidising fossil fuels because we do that. There's hidden subsidies, massive, billions and billions. Stop new exploration. The International Energy Agency, a very, very conservative body that is full of the fossil fuel sector, has said, for net zero, we do not need any new coal or gas. So no new approvals. Even the Chinese government has said, 
they will stop building coal-fired power stations offshore. They've announced that, you know, just announced that. They'll stop building them in China within a couple of years. We'd like to see them do it quicker, but at least they have target dates to stop doing things. Australia needs to stop holding onto the dream that coal is a part of our future, and it doesn't have to be. 40,000 people work in the coal sector. Yes, we need to help every single one of those people transition the way we did in the textiles, clothing and footwear industry a couple of decades ago um, at the turn of the century, the way we've done in the car manufacturing industry. We've done this before. We can reinvent ourselves. So you can see I get quite fired up about this. There are lots of solutions, but we absolutely have to put in place and we have to help people understand that where we bear some costs, so if we're investing in, in additional infrastructure, you know, let's not think about putting more roads in. Let's think about the bicycles and the trains and the electric public transport. But where we do need the right infrastructure to move around, you know, if it's solar energy, people like Mike Cannon-Brooks and Twiggy Forest, no dummies when it comes to, to business, are, are looking at solar arrays in the Melbourne Territory that can export to Singapore. What I'm saying is there may be some costs that we have to bear in the short term but these are infinitesimally small compared to the shocks that are coming down the system. If you, people think COVID was bad. We are facing COVID-sized shocks, you know, within a matter of decades, within the life of our kids and grandkids on a regular basis from climate change. So I know it's hard, but we build today, we build new economic opportunity, we help transition and we create a safe and secure future. It sounds so bloody obvious, doesn't it? You wonder why there are some politicians, and it's really not that many. It's We are being held to ransom by a very small community. This is the thing, and when you mention the numbers, it does infuriate me. What, when you say held to ransom, how are we being held to ransom? Well, I think when we're holding others to ransom, you know, by the threat of climate change that comes from Australia... But what is happening is other countries are embedding a, um, a carbon price and we're going to see the first cab off the rank in doing something about this is the European Union. So they are basically saying, if you don't put a car price on carbon, we'll yeah. put one on for you and we will make you move. But we're also seeing that countries saying we don't want to invest. So we are seeing company after company, fund after fund say they are going to divest from fossil fuels. They're not going to invest in those companies. And at a certain point in time, they will stop investing in those countries. I mean, you know, you can see what happens when you make the French angry <laughs> over, the, over the submarines. This will have implications for our climate relations as well. We will be shunned. And there is a direct cost here because if other countries and companies don't want to invest in Australia because we're not acting, that means that the cost of capital, the interest rates that you pay to invest, are going to go up. And that affects every single Australian. It means less investment. It means fewer jobs. It means slower growth. And people have to, I realise this is incredibly difficult and complex concepts, but it's not just, oh, what do we pay for to put a price on carbon now for our future? There are direct flow-on impacts that will happen today. And whilst carbon border adjustment mechanisms may not have massive implications for our economy, they will affect our trade flows. They will see exports fall. There will be some job losses as a result of that. So we need to get on the same page as everybody else. Otherwise, we will be shunned and we will lose out on the opportunities. If you want to hear the full brilliance of Nikki Hartley framing the conversation about climate action in one that even your most money-loving capitalist mates will love and 
I'm a money-loving capitalist. I just think there's better, more efficient ways to do things than we're doing it now. Look, you can listen to the rest of the episode, episode 411. It's pretty good. It's one of my favorites, actually. If this episode may help you have a conversation with someone uh, around climate action, text it to them. So just share in the corner of the podcast app. There's probably an arrow or a share button. Hit that text. There you go. Listen to this. Thought of you. That sort of thing works. If you'd like to help other people, another way to help other people listen to this episode without sharing it directly is to rate the episode. Like, subscribe, follow wherever you are listening, however you listen. These sort of things help the platforms you listen to them on push them to the front of other people's feeds. And um, it really helps more people listen to the messages of someone like Nikki Hutley. Thanks very, very much for listening. Thanks for being a part of it. Thank you to Bree Steele, who produced this episode. Andy Ma, who did audio and video post-production. Thanks for being a part of it. I'll be back here on Friday. See you then. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.